So in our uh, check-in today, I want you to begin kind of connecting what you're feeling in your body right now with the embodiment of the people that you serve, whether that's in a congregational setting, a chaplaincy setting, uh, a kind of community organizing setting. Uh, as you check in, say good morning to your body, I want you to first ask where in my body right now am I holding the people that I serve? Just take a moment with that question. Where in my body right now am I holding the people I serve? Now, if you've been able, perhaps, to identify some way that you carry this people in you, your awareness, your connection to this people, what does your body teach you in this moment about the people you serve? I want us to allow our bodies to be our teachers. What does your body teach you just right now about the people you serve? Okay, maybe you found that exercise a little more difficult, a little abstract and so I'm going to invite you just to kind of play with that in days ahead in times ahead be open to that felt connectedness in your body and let it teach you uh, perhaps something unexpected something you you didn't previously consciously come to terms with um, today I would really love to hear from all of you. I really, really would. And our question is a little bit different. So um, tomorrow, if I can have some assistance. Tomorrow, what would, what do you really hope that we're going to be talking about? Our topic tomorrow is very simply, uh, as Sally was saying, it's implications for your preaching. We've touched on it, you know, here and there, but that's going to be the focus of our of our whole top of our whole session tomorrow. And I'm open to doing some freestyling uh, in that session. So, just one thing. I can't promise we're going to cover everything, um, but here's your chance. I want to hear from you. One thing you hope we're going to address. So today's topic, racing hearts and faltering knees, embodied reception of biblical prophecy, embodied reception. So the word reception, it's a little, uh, oh, sorry, before I get into that, the outline. We're going to talk about what is reception. 
we're going to then kind of land on some questions that, that are just going to get the wheels turning, some food for thought that's going to relate to your preaching. We're going to seed that early in the lecture. Then we're going to try to break down what we, what we mean by reception into kind of layers of what we see inside the text and what we see in the meeting place of that world in the text and the world outside the text. So I break those into three categories. Uh, and then we're going to do some, uh, some case studies uh, from Jonah, Ezekiel, a few different uh, passages where creation is identified as recipient and participant. And then we're going to look at a couple passages that um, engage in a practice of recruiting the audience into the task of prophetic action and proclamation. And, um, and I should have at the end of this outline, we will then move into some implications of that for your preaching. OK, so reception, this is kind of an abstract term. Uh, and it can mean different things to different folks. So we want to break this down. We'll start with reception as it's sort of classically understood. Um, and from there, we're going to develop a more expansive surprise understanding that recognizes multiple ways reception involves the body. So I use the term reception uh, with some, you know, some sort of reservations. For me, it doesn't fully do as, you know, if I just look at its um, kind of dictionary meanings, it doesn't fully do all the work that I want it to do. Uh, but when I think about it etymologically, um, from uh, the Latin re, kipio, to take again, I have that idea of, of what happens when you take it up. That's not um, always going to be in textual form or in you know, a kind of um, what we think of as a receptive modality. We'll see this as also something very active. But in its classical sense, um, and when we, when we think of this term reception, we're used to thinking of the recipients of a letter, a prayer, a payment, a gift, right? These are things we receive, health care. And this sounds like a unidirectional flow, one direction, information, intention, currency, goods, services. And when we speak of ancient texts like the books of the Bible, one of the things, one of the things we mean by reception is that process of transmission, translation, preservation, publication, circulation, how that text got from wherever we think it started to these places on its journey through time and space and to us and its other audiences and users today. You may be familiar with the Latin phrase textus, textus receptus, receptus. Um, this uh, refers to the, uh, the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. You have a picture here from Erasmus's New Testament that was the first kind of published version of that textus receptus that was the basis for uh, the translation in the Luther Bible, uh, Luther's German uh, translation. It was the basis for the Tyndale Bible, 
for the King James Bible. And in that usage of that word received, rekeptus, the term asserts authenticity through a claim to a venerable shared tradition. And that flow of transmission that we're talking about, not just you know, this particular one, but, but that flow more broadly, that's, let's say that's part of what I have in mind, okay? When I refer to the embodied reception of biblical prophecy, I mentioned yesterday that can we even think about the materiality of that process of transmission? Uh, can, we, can we locate it in moments in history in the hands of people uh, and recognize that that too is an embodied process? But there is a lot more to uh, what I mean by reception and what I want us to be exploring and thinking about today. Now, a somewhat different sense of the term reception enters into biblical studies, uh, sort of first through the field of philosophical hermeneutics and phenomenology in the mid 20th century, uh, when uh, you know those are those are very long and sometimes alienating uh, words, but. Phenomenology, if you're not familiar with this kind of branch within uh, continental theology or philosophy, was really trying to look at lived experience, our processes, you know, can, can we understand how we understand? Can we describe it as an embodied process, as an experienced process and get sort of behind that? Can we, can we describe what's happening when we engage with a work of art? Can we describe what's happening when we play? Um, why do people like houses? Can we philosophize about that? That's the kind of thing that phenomenology was doing. And, uh, and within that school of philosophy, uh, we have this uh, German, so a lot of this was happening in Germany, but not only in Germany. Um, we have this uh, phrase, so German, if you're uh, at all familiar with this language, you know uh, German loves its compound nouns. Looks daunting, is really not uh, all that complicated. Uh, Wirkungsgeschichte, Geschichte is history. Wirkung, the working, right? How does something work in history over time? So Wirkungsgeschichte is often translated the history of effects or the effective history. I love uh, this phrase. I love both of those translations. And, uh, and it recognizes uh, a, a complex, rich, multifold history in which um, the ways people engage with a text over time has real cultural effects, okay? So here we are, uh, we might be looking at a text, but we might also be looking at a work of art or performance or music. Um, and there are sort of analogous developments later on within communication studies that lend some you know, kind of new perspectives and textures to how we understand these processes. So this history of effects um, includes what we may be more familiar with thinking of history of interpretation, history of interpretation. And when we consider that history, we tend to think kind of first what our minds go to. Usually things like commentaries, sermons, uh, and we tend to think maybe of the works of Augustine, Luther, K. 
Calvin, and we think of those in part because we're conditioned to look for interpretations that, one, demonstrate erudition, and two, that have been passed down in books. And so just notice how that privileging of word and text uh, governs even uh, those choices and preferences about what we're paying attention to in this long history of engagement and effects. We less often include in that history things like dramatic performance, dance, film, visual uh, and plastic arts, music, or ways that engagement with biblical texts has influenced or been used in economic systems, how has that engagement, and I say, how has the engagement had these effects, not how has the text had these effects, okay? How has that engagement shaped communities and movements, impacted politics and policies? How has it shaped bodily disciplines? But history of effects recognizes also that what we call reception entails more than things we would call interpretation. It entails a broad range of responses to a text, a performance, or a work of art. These may include personal engagement or what is sometimes referred to as actualization. And I think that's very much what Sally's talking about in terms of where does it go in us, in our actions, in our lives, in the shapes of our communities after that engagement, uh, that moment of engagement with the text, the word, and so on. Um, so personal engagement, actualization, cultural effects that may be uh, more difficult to tease out, um, new works of art that engage, take up, and respond to earlier works of art. And from this standpoint, we begin to see that reception, reception is an active process. It is a creative process of engagement and response. Reception theory further recognizes that those who receive and engage with a text, performance, or other work of art do not receive it as though they were simply a blank slate to be written upon. They bring to that encounter their own complex histories, distinctive cultural, experiential, and cognitive frames. And so when we speak of the reception of biblical prophecy, we might think in terms of the diverse processes by which diverse audiences, hearers, readers interact with prophetic word and action. So for me, that's, that's where I want us to, to start our thinking. Think of this as an interactive process. And I want us, as I mentioned before, to develop a broader, more embodied understanding of that process, that interactive process of reception that matches the more expansive understanding of embodied prophecy that we've been building through this week. So in the case of prophetic narratives, say, 
Reception would include the interactions, responses, and transformed states, not only of those to whom the prophet proclaims or those who witness prophetic symbolic action, but also those for whom the prophet intercedes, prepares a meal, retrieves an ax head, or restores life. Okay, so we want to, to recognize that reception is taking place in all of those interactions. The interactive and relational nature of prophecy means that neither prophetic action nor response to it flow in one direction only. What we are calling reception entails a complex interplay of action and response that is fundamentally a form of interaction. So that's our, that's our theory part. We got it over with. Yeah. Okay. Both. So because prophecy, prophecy isn't in its own little bubble. It has to, by definition, include already that embodied interaction so that one of the things we're going to see as we look at kind of the layers, one of the layers of reception is already a part of prophecy itself. So great question. And, uh, and we'll see how they're, they're, they're folded in together um, by necessity. Okay. So some questions that I want to just seed now. Um, you've been already, and I'm sorry, this is a little small. You've been already thinking about these, uh, and, and I want us to keep them in view. So how does this awareness of the body our relationship to our bodies, uh, how does concern for the body generally, how does that shape ministry, not just preaching, any ministry? Okay, can we, can we uh, challenge ourselves in the areas? Maybe, you know, if someone's doing chaplaincy in a hospital or in hospice, that's really obvious. But maybe for others, it's less obvious uh, for different kinds of ministry and settings. And we want to get in that, in that space. How do recipients, and I use that term in our kind of expanded sense, experience and respond to prophecy and preaching in their bodies? Okay, We'll be exploring uh, that, you know, how that takes shape in some of the biblical narratives. But how do recipients, that includes people hearing your sermons, and not just hearing, but interacting with your sermons. How are they experiencing it in their bodies? Does awareness of this embodied reception, does it change how we think about prophecy, what it is, what it does? Can we um, continue to allow uh, that uh, grasp of prophecy to expand and shift so that the body takes its uh, central place, and then does it change our approach to the practice of preaching, and if so, how? Uh, and we'll, you know, again, we'll, we'll keep thinking and talking about that tomorrow. Just want to really uh, explicitly acknowledge these questions. 
So now there are three layers of reception. Uh, Jenny's question kind of got us uh, to begin to recognize that there's a few different things going on here. Um, and I'm, I, I'm gonna call them, I, I thought I had to give them names. They're not like very catchy, um, but I'm gonna, call, I'm gonna call them designated, narrated, and then not on this slide, but, uh, but on the next one, uh, secondary. Designated, narrated, and secondary. Just so we've got some categories we can work with if we want. So when I say uh, designated and narrated, these are forms of reception that are taking place in what uh, what folks often call the world inside the text. Okay, if you get inside the story, it's right there in the story. Okay, so designated re uh, reception is uh, intended audiences, intended effects that are made explicit in the story. They're named or described in biblical prophetic text. That intention might be declared by God might be declared by an intermediary like the spirit or the hand or an angel or another prophet or by the, by the prophet themselves. So simple examples, just so you, you can you know, get a hook for that. God tells Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, let my people go. So Pharaoh is a designated recipient, right? Um, letting the people go is sort of a intended effect, uh, or you know, it, at some point it is. And another example would be God telling Jeremiah, prophesy against all the inhabitants of the earth uh, that the Lord enters judgment with all flesh. So the intended designated recipient, all the inhabitants of the earth. Um, designated reception within the narrative frame hasn't happened yet. So this is part of God's intended future. It is a declaration of divine will that enfolds together prophet, people, creation. Narrated reception refers to reception that is portrayed as happening in the text. Uh, this includes narrated responses to oral or written prophecy. It also includes uh, prophetic interaction with audiences and participants during or after the performance of an embodied prophecy. So two examples of narrated reception we'll be looking at would be in Jonah chapter 3. Right, Jonah goes into Nineveh, says five words, and next thing you know, everyone's fasting, and uh, has, they've all changed their clothes, and the king got off his throne. Right, That's narrated, embodied reception. Uh, another example would be, um, we're not uh, going to look at this particular example, but, but Jeremiah and Pashur. So Pashur hears Jeremiah preaching, and his, uh, his response is to put... Jeremiah in stocks. That's an example also of narrated reception. It's not always positive. Always important for the preacher to keep Jeremiah in mind. Reception is not always friendly. It doesn't always feel good, okay? Um, but there it is. Following God's will um, isn't always going to uh, reward us in... Um, 
in physical comforts. So often, one of the things we're going to see is that both that designated and narrated reception, they're going to be there in the same story. It might start with uh, a voicing of God's intention for what the prophet will do, and then the narrative follows, and then we'll see that they can be interwoven. And we'll want to think about what that, um, what that means. We'll see that, for example, in the story of Ezekiel in the Valley of the Dry Bones. As we move outside that world in the text, we find ourselves here in the world outside the text. Secondary reception takes place where those two worlds meet, where those two worlds meet, the inside and the outside. And that meeting place is vast. It stretches through thousands of years and all across the globe. Secondary reception of biblical prophecy occurs when people, ancient, modern, or in between, read, hear, perform, interpret, actualize, and engage biblical prophetic texts. It also occurs when people read, hear, experience, and interact with literature, sermons, performances, art, or other cultural forms and effects that are themselves also forms of reception. You can see it begins to, you know, the layers, it's like, um, it's like geological sedimentation, and then those transform, right, into something new, something else. Uh, so this is, this is complex, how these layers interact also with each other. And we want to recognize that preaching then, preaching is formed at a site of engagement with this vast history of effects, bringing modern contexts and audiences into interaction and relationship with ancient ones, uh, but also with each other. I mentioned earlier that designated and narrated reception can kind of alternate with, flow into one another. As preachers, we want to always consider the complex relationship between designated, narrated, and secondary reception. We are ourselves doing that creative work of reception, and to make it more complicated still, we are inviting others to take it up again and do the same. We talked um, yesterday about the bridging of divine and human realities. We see here that bridging in the processes of reception. And it is also, we see a bridging of intention and action, performer and audience, author and reader, ancient and modern contexts. It is a bridging also of audiences, responses, and effects. So the modern audience doesn't replace an ancient audience. They're both present. 
and they interact with one another. The modern audience is building on, maybe identifying or disidentifying with uh, recipients that we find in the narratives or out in front of them in history, receiving and responding to their experiences, actions, and more. I think of what uh, Gerald's doing in the, the workshops on um, past preaching, future preaching. This is, this is absolutely what we're talking about here. So let's look at some case studies. Uh, so uh, we can get out of the abstract here. That's a hard place to stay. Uh, I want us to start with a simple narrative example of embodied reception. So you know this story well. God commands Jonah to go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim against it, cry out against it. Jonah's own experience as a prophet who is bodily swallowed, transported, and vomited, literally in Hebrew, vomited back up by a fish en route to his commission. This provides for us a wonderful example of embodied prophetic experience. And we're going to see that Jonah's embodied vulnerability finds a match, a partner in the people's chosen embodied vulnerability. Okay, he doesn't like it, but they match. So in chapter three, the people of Nineveh, they hear Jonah proclaim these five words. It's a little more than five in English, but five words. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. And that word that we translate with the phrase in English, will be overturned. In Hebrew, this is uh, a nifal participle, nepaket. Uh, if you are familiar with the nifal, uh, you know that it's most often passive. Hence, that translation will be overturned. But it also has a reflexive meaning, something you do to yourself. Uh, and this is the same uh, verb that we saw with Saul when Samuel said Saul was going to become another man. Uh, and I mentioned that in some ways, uh, it, it, you know, it's this like be turned inside out, be flipped over. Uh, but this can equally mean in Hebrew that they would turn themselves around. They would flip themselves over, turn themselves inside out. And the oracle is ambiguous. There's a choice embedded in that ambiguity. Their response to Jonah's prophecy is that, first of all, we're told they believed God. Never was a preacher as successful as Jonah. Five words, they believed God. But their response was not merely inward belief. It found outer and embodied expression in a collective praxis of repentance. The common people convoked a fast. All of them, we are told, great and small, put on sackcloth. And then the king got up from his throne, got off from his throne, put sackcloth, oh, took off his royal robes, put sackcloth on his own body, and sat in a pile of ashes. 
He issued a royal decree, a performative act of writing and speech that forbade human or animal from eating or drinking. No one, he said, shall taste anything. Humans and animals would wear sackcloth and would together cry out to God. These actions would be catalyst, sign, expression. They would accompany a turning from evil. That is what God wanted them to do, to turn from evil and injustice. And though the king did not bank on influencing God, he did wonder if God might see what they were doing, hear their cry, and change God's mind. And we're told God did see their actions. God saw their turning, and God changed God's mind about the destruction God had planned. And in this narrative, that vulnerability we found in the story of Jonah's being swallowed, carried, vomited, found a correlate and a response in the people's embodied response. Abstaining from food and water emphasized their mortality, their dependence and interdependence. It performed before God a surrendering of exploitative power and willfulness. The coarse and simple cloth of mourning replaced their regular clothing, whether that was utilitarian for their purposes, whether it was designed to ornament and project their status. The king's inclusion of animals in the practices of collective humbling singled a recognition that the future fate of the people and its livestock were bound up together in an unequal symbiosis. God's response revealed that interaction and reception extend beyond the human realm. God participates also. The bridging of divine and human continues in the interactive unfolding of embodied reception, an embodied reception that includes God, divine responsiveness. We see that it expands also into the realm of non-human creation. Ultimately, God's regard for the cattle of Nineveh, that's the last word in the book. Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel is told, prophesy to the bones, to these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord to these bones, I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you, I will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Hear that designated reception within the 
the command to the prophet, okay? So Ezekiel does as he is commanded so that narrated reception follows designated reception. Action follows intention. And Ezekiel says, as I prophesied, suddenly there was a noise, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. I looked and there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. This rattling of bones, their coming together, dramatizes an audible embodied response. We see through the prophet's eyes the return of flesh to these rattling bones, but the response is incomplete because there is no breath. Without breath, there is no life, there is no speech, there is no autonomous movement. And at this moment, another recipient, audience, and prophetic partner is identified in the narrative. Ezekiel must prophesy to the spirit, to the breath, ruach, the spirit. Notice, God becomes the designated recipient of prophecy by God's own command. Ezekiel says, he said to me, God said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, mortal, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come, breathe, breathe upon these slain that they may live. Narrated reception again follows on designated reception in a scene that exemplifies embodied reception at the juncture of divine and human agency, collective action, and responsive speech. Ezekiel says, I, I did prophesy as God commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet, a vast multitude. And then he said to me, mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. The breath, the spirit responds to Ezekiel's prophesying by entering into and animating human bodies. The bones receive life and stand together. They embody a miracle of resurrection, a possibility of a future. They also embody solidarity, witness, the slain, dispossessed, exiled, and discarded come together and stand upright together as a house, as a people, a community who witness shoulder to shoulder, the dynamic interaction in this passage between God and people, spirit and bones, mediated by the prophet, it continues as God responds to their cry by commanding the prophet to prophesy once more, offering promise and guarantee for their return from captivity. And in verse 14, at the end of this pericope, God asserts the synergy of divine word and action. I have spoken and I will 
One of the things I want to highlight in this narrative, in addition to this um, dynamic interplay, is that Ezekiel models for us that we, as preachers, ministers, we know our limitations. Ezekiel doesn't know the answer to God's question, can these bones live? I don't know, God. Only you know. Ezekiel knows that he can't make a pile of bones into a living being. Only God's breath can do that. As preacher, we can see, we can diagnose the state of our people, and we're called, yes, to mediate God's care to and for them. We are called to recruit them into God's saving work. We'll talk about that in a minute, but sometimes we have to remind ourselves and God that it's still God's job to do the saving. So I want us now to consider what may be an unexpected recipient and participant in biblical prophecy. Again and again, in prophetic narrative and oracle, we encounter designated and narrated reception on the part of the earth, the landscape, non-human creation. The third sign Moses performs at God's command to establish his authority as a prophet is to strike the Nile River with his staff, and its waters turn to blood, transforming this element of water into the plasma-rich life force that nourishes and protects animal life. We become mindful of the homologies, the structural similarities between waterways and our own circulatory system and begin to recognize in that homology an affinity, a kinship between animal life and the biosphere that we inhabit. The transformation of water into blood highlights the analogous embodiment of the entirety of the created world. Moses later parts the sea, purifies water, brings forth water from the rock. And when he does so, it shows how these created elements of fresh water, sea, and mineral both receive and participate in the prophet's action and God's plan for liberation and provision. Ezekiel is commanded, set your face toward the mountains and prophesy against them. And he's told to say, thus says the Lord God to the mountains and hills, to the ravines and valleys. He's told to hold hill and valley responsible for the actions of their inhabitants. Isaiah's book begins with a summons to heaven 
and earth to witness to God's complaint against Israel. Isaiah enjoins the sea, the coastlands, and desert to sing and cry out the praise of God. And later he commands, sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. That verse, if you heard it, echoes the divisions and the multiplications of creation in Genesis 1, involving every aspect of the cosmos in the celebration of redemption. Together, these passages exhibit a strong sense of the interdependence and mutual responsibility of people and their environment. They caution that the prophet mediates not only between God and people, but between God, people, and the rest of creation. And with those examples in view, I want you to be thinking about reflecting on the relationship between our own preaching and the created world we inhabit in our secondary reception, our encounter, engagement, and creative use of prophetic texts as communities and as preacher? How are we involving and engaging the rest of creation? How are we recognizing our mutual responsibility for one another? The last examples I want us to look at involve recruiting the audience. I want to tell you briefly something about Hebrew grammar that some of you will know, some of you uh, may be interested to learn. So in English, if I give a command, if I say go or walk, you can't tell if I'm telling that to one person or a group of people. Okay? We have one form that we call the imperative form. In Hebrew, those forms are really different. Um, the, the plural form ends in ooh. This, this strong U vowel that's kind of, it kind of sticks with you. It's easy to identify. Uh, so in translation, we kind of miss a detail that's present in the text, where sometimes uh, a command may be uh, plural and we think it's singular. It may be singular and we think it's plural. Um, in the lyrical prophetic poetry of Isaiah, there are passages that speak to this implied audience of hearers, readers, using a plural imperative, direct address, um, and, and sometimes we miss it in translation. So two examples. Isaiah says, comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her penalty is paid. In chapter 35, in the midst of this beautiful poem, strengthen weak hands, make firm, feeble knees, say to those of a fearful heart, be strong and do not fear. Here is your God. For years, when I would hear that comfort my people, I thought it was a noun. 
There's another uh, translation issue. You know, comfort, like I'm saying to you, you know, have comfort. Um, no, it's a command. It's a plural command. You guys, all of you, your job is to comfort the people. Your job is to speak and cry out the good news. Strengthen weak hands, make firm feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful of heart. Each one of those is a plural command. You guys, all of you, that's your job. Isaiah as prophet is commissioning Isaiah's audience to do this prophetic work. This to me goes straight to what Shauna's been doing in her workshops on collaborative preaching. What does it mean to recruit the congregation, to enlist the congregation, to recognize their gifts and capacities and their calling from God to share in this work that you do? 